Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mike Springston FFC Podcast, where we coach you in the Word. We're glad to have you from wherever you are today, uh, listening in, downloading. Uh, we are blessed to have you as a part of our ministry, and we would love to hear from you. Uh, springston56 at gmail.com, mikespringstonministry.com, ffcma.org, or through Family Fellowship Chapel's direct messaging. Uh, we hope that you are enjoying the study of the Word of God. Today we're going to do part one of how do the gifts of the Spirit produce an advantage. And uh, this is going to be an interesting teaching, and uh, I hope it will bless you. And so I want to remind you about my book, I Surrender, Amazon and in bookstores. I think it would bless you. I want to let you know if there's anything we can do to be involved with your ministry. If the Lord's laying us on your heart, we'd love to uh, speak with you concerning that as well. At any rate, let's get into the word of prayer and then we will go directly into the scripture today and see what we can find out concerning how the gifts of the Spirit produce an advantage. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We pray that you will minister to us. We pray that you will open our eyes that we can see and our ears that we can hear and our heart that we can understand what the Word of God is saying to us. And then, may we apply it to our lives and be changed into the image of your dear Son. Jesus, we ask you to speak to us out of the throne room of God. And we ask you to reveal to us through the Holy Spirit what we need to know, what we need to do, what we need to demonstrate, and what we need to understand. And as we do that, uh, we will uh, be blessed, be corrected. Uh, we will be moved into the deeper knowledge and deeper space of understanding the Word of God and how the Word of God operates in our lives. So bless us now, I pray, in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, who is our High Priest, our Lord, and our Man in the Godhead. We give you glory and praise and honor for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now why would Paul make this statement while defining and describing the gifts of the Spirit? Well, in the day in which Paul was bringing the church into the understanding of how to practice the gifts of the Spirit in a fashion that was decent and in order, Paul was expressing to the church the need for understanding how to use the gifts of the Spirit as a heavenly advantage. This heavenly advantage would be one where Jesus Christ would reveal to them through the Holy Spirit the message and messages that would both expose and express himself to the people. Of course, these in Corinth were Gentiles, who had believed upon the accomplished work of Jesus, they were learning to operate in spiritual things as the church was developing. Now remember, these Gentiles had been worshipers of other things and other gods. 
So their having to be taught in these matters is understandable as they have not been under the Abrahamic or the Davidic covenant to see how God was doing his business. But they did, however, have an eye to access the things that Jesus had done. They also had access to Paul's demonstration of the Spirit. So it was organization and understanding, not the lack of desire to demonstrate that Corinth required. All of this activity in the Gentile church was stimulated by Luke's writing and his description of the occurrences prior to and on the day of Pentecost. This led into the subsequent writing concerning the acts of the Holy Spirit in which we read in the entirety of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 2, Luke wrote, Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he had through the Holy, Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now as the church began, the biggest factor that had to be overcome was the pervasive lie that was told by both the Romans and the church leadership that Jesus was dead. Of course, we know that they accused the disciples of stealing his body to present the illusion that he had not been risen from the dead at all. So the divine plan of God unveiled a three-pronged approach to counteract such a lie. First, he would be seen of over 500 people after his resurrection. Second, he would fill the 120 with the Holy Spirit, and from that anointing, Peter would refute the entire narrative directly to the face of all Israel. He would refer to Jesus as a man approved by God. This was a part of Paul's message to the Galatians in chapter 3. In Acts 2.22, he said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. He would place an exclamation on this verse by saying, A man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him, which God did by him. In the midst of you, as ye yourselves know. Here the message is moving forward into what the third prong would initiate. It was to be the furtherance of the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the miracles, wonders, and signs would be the items that would cause men to know that he was not only risen, but that he was in fact alive. It would cause men to know that since he was alive, he was functioning in the earth through men. The apostles would preach and teach the message of Jesus Christ, which at that point was repentance, and that was so up until Paul's revelation of grace. Upon repentance, the apostles laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Each time this miracle, miracle was accomplished, it confirms Mark's writing in Mark 16, 19 and 20. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere. 
the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following amen. The Lord, in fact, was working with them and confirming his word. Signs, wonders, and miracles remain the calling card of the church even though Jesus in body was not present. But he was present in the spirit. Now the apostles had no knowledge of Peter's message of Christ in you at this point, but they did have the understanding of the revelation of the Holy Spirit. He had sat upon them and transformed their spiritual selves into packages of revelation, power, and inspiration. They're expressing these three tools, and they began to turn the world upside down. Now, as this ministry spread and began to operate by those who were not of the original group, and now, of course, began to include the Gentiles, spiritual awareness abounded. But spiritual understanding did not. So Paul has to speak order into their ministries. Those who came to be a part of the ministry and were unlearned concerning the works of the Spirit at the direction of Jesus Christ had to be ministered to and taught the work of the Spirit appropriately. Remember, they were coming predominantly to see the works of Jesus and to ascertain their validity. This would show them that Jesus was in fact alive and resurrected, but also show that he was seated on the right hand of majesty. So it was critical that the message flowed in a fashion that the uneducated and the unlearned could identify the work of Jesus. In essence, that he was initiating and confirming the work from his position at the right hand of majesty. So order was essential. Jesus never did any of his works haphazardly. Often he did them away from the spotlight, but never did he become the show. That's very present in Matthew 12, 19 and 20. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory. He was not a showman, nor was he in need of the attention of man. So his demeanor was gentle and loving, was kind and merciful. It was abundant in justice and truth. These, my friend, are the qualities of the glory of which he was made, from which he was made. He did not break the weak or eliminate the hope of anyone. He was, in fact, their hope. He was their strength, and at no time would Jesus look upon the faint, the feeble, or the tormented, the hurt, the lame, and declare them as unredeemable. He would compassionately minister to them, and in so doing, the love of the Father was exposed and expressed. Now we see a church that's operating in the function that's been designed for them, but they're operating out of character as their actions are not ministering to those who need to know or want to know in a way that they can hear, see it, and accept it. Paul moves in now to show them how to operate in these spiritual gifts. He provides boundaries and parameters that are to be followed for the benefit of the church. This order allows the uneducated to learn and see what Jesus Christ is doing from his position. This is good teaching. How do we know that? Because the church grew and developed. 
and it is still doing so today. But this particular part of Paul's teaching has been under scrutiny and attack for many, uh, from many areas for years on end. The question, of course, is why? Why would anyone desire to attempt to live a Christian life knowing what we know concerning the deceitfulness and the plan of the enemy and not with their entire being desire the use of the gifts of the Spirit? Why would they not desire the advantage in which Jesus himself operated? Why would anyone want to try to deal with the enemy on human terms? What do I mean? When we get saved by the coordination of grace and the work of the blood through faith, we have a work accomplished in our inner man that causes a rebirth of, the, of our spirit. And this is great because here we are reconnected to the spirit of us, you know, that spirit that we see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Of course, that spirit was the one that created the original man. The Holy Spirit is the orchestrator of the work of the new birth. He has accomplished the thing that was required to be done in you and, and that was one for you by the six works that Jesus began at the cross. You know them, the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection are the three works that were done to defeat the enemy and to release you from the bondage of the enemy. My friend, this is the basics of the new birth. Now we know that Jesus went and as the high priest sprinkled blood on the vessels of ministry, entered into the throne room of God and there was exalted Lord and then returned to earth and reascended and was seated at the right hand of God and became the man in the Godhead bodily. Now with the birth of anything, there is also a growing season. That season develops whatever it is that needs to be grown, in this case, the body and the senses of the person that need to be grown in spiritual content. They need to be educated and learned in spiritual content. Now, in our modern teaching of the new birth, we place very little and, and maybe even no emphasis on this growing season. We instruct our people concerning the inner birth, but we do not do but very little educating to help them come into any spiritual maturity. People struggle, as you can imagine. If we did that with our own natural birth children, they would surely never survive. But we, in fact, do that with the new birth. We give no structure to what they're supposed to grow into. We give little concern for what they do not know or what they do not understand concerning the Christian life. Because of that, the word of God often is devoured by the enemy, and they live failed lives. But we shout and rejoice because we use a doctrine that is ill-conceived, and it becomes a detriment to the welfare of those of whom we have shown the pathway to Christ. There must be credit given, my friends, to the growing season. During that growing season, there is the development of the new soul. Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 16. But the natural man receiveth 
not the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. For their foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now who is the natural man? Is he the man that has not come into the things of the Spirit? You say, but pastor, the Holy Spirit was the one who worked in me to cause me to be saved, and you would be correct. Your inner man has been born again, but there is a part of you that's not come under the guidance and the direction of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now remember what he said, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. We're talking about the intellect of the natural man not coming into the things. Why? Because those things are spiritually discerned. Now remember, when Adam became alive in his soul, that the final step of Adam's development in the spirit of us and being breathed upon until he became a living soul was completed. He was breathed upon by us and he became. Now what did he become? A living soul. He was alive in the spirit prior to the dirt being formed and prior to the revelation of the life in his soul. He was alive in his inner man, but his soul was not alive yet. He was not in the position to receive the things of the Spirit of God. So whenever God took him and made him in the image of us, then he wrapped him in a body and breathed into his nostrils. At that point, Adam's soul was activated, and Adam was able to become a living soul. Now when a man remains in his own intellect, he remains a natural man, regardless of the fact that he has been born again in his inner man. Let me show you scripture. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, uh-huh, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The presentation of the body as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable well, that's just your reasonable service. In other words, for you to relinquish the control of your spirit by identifying the forgiveness that Jesus has accomplished for you is the only thing really that makes any sense. When contrasted with the depravity, the captivity of sin, and the death of sin, this is the will of God for you anyway. It is certainly only reasonable that when you contrast life with condemnation, you would sensibly choose life. If we accept the work of the will of God and turn our spirit over to him, then we're no longer conformed to the old nature. That old nature dies and we experience the new birth. What a wonderful experience that is. What has the new birth done? It's brought you into a new life in your spirit. You laid down the fallen and dead spirit that was a slave to sin and its ringmaster, the devil. With a new spirit, you connect to the God of the universe. The question is, are we done? Not according to Paul. 
We are then to renew our mind. How do we do so? We take on the mind of Christ. Our soul begins to think in revelation. We begin to act in power and we become inspired by the things that inspired him. Our intellect is totally changed. We ought to no longer operate from this lower level order of thinking. Look at how Adam operated when his mind was brought into being by the breathing into his nostrils. Then contrast that with Adam after the fall. His thought processes were totally different. His thoughts in creation were higher order thoughts. He could operate in total dominion. He could take care of the garden and all that was done there flawlessly and do so without driving himself into the ground. Then the fall. Adam's mind changes. Adam dies spiritually. His mind changes. He becomes an excuse maker. He becomes a finger pointer and a blamer. From that point on, Adam would till the ground and it was going to be drudgery. Prior to that, Adam was a man who had great dominion. Why? Because he was walking in the image of us and his soul was infused with the breath of the Holy Spirit. Now there's a means, my friend, to accomplish what Adam had in his original state in our day, but we refuse it because we don't understand the importance of it with respect to our abilities to overcome the enemy. Verse 15, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Now watch this. He that has the renewed mind of Christ gets out of his human side, and he lives in his spiritual side, where he has the ability to discern and judge. You say, I don't know anyone who does that. I would say, well, that's probably absolutely correct, but it's only because you don't know the right people. You're hanging around people that are mirroring your own spiritual structure. Therefore, your education and learning levels remain well below the status of which God planned for you. Now know this, you are, when you are in your spiritual walk, not you are where you are in your spiritual walk, not because you can't live in a higher order of spiritual existence, but because you don't know what we can do, and we simply don't and are not taught how to do it. The Christian who operates in a born-again spirit and, in a, and from an alive soul, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl has no equal. He can and will dominate every place that the sole of his feet touches. He will be the man of revelation, power, and inspiration. He will be the man of whom those that are living without divine, the divine power of God in revelation, power, and inspiration, he'll be the one that they call when they are needing a message or a touch from God. The unlearned and the uneducated in the spiritual growth will go back to the place where they offer sacrifice those places you know that we call the monuments to the dead. But when the chips are down 
They seek someone who has the mind of Christ. Verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 2, For who hath not known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Here's the answer to what the growing season has developed. We do not instruct, but because we have the mind of Christ operating in us, we can express and expose his thoughts, ideas, insights, and understanding. So now we move into what Paul meant when he said these words from our text. In order to do so, however, we must take a quick look into Acts chapter 10, verse 37 through 42. Look at what it says. That word I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism from which John preached. Think about that. That word that was published throughout all Judea. Think about where Jesus said that in Acts chapter 1. Here we see the first reference point to the advantage. Would you believe it that the reference point to the greatest advantage that man will ever have was given in the book of John by John the Baptist before, before the teaching of the new birth? Because in John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, there's one coming whose shoes I'm not worthy to latch. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then in John chapter 3, Jesus begins to unfold the plan of the new birth. In John 3, 16, he unfolds the love of God to the world. Further in John 3, about 18 or 19, he unfolds the fact that he that believeth is not condemned, but he that doesn't believe is condemned already. I say all of this to bring you, and, and bear in mind, following all of this comes the works of Jesus Christ. So this message has been published from John the Baptist and the publishing of the message concerning the Holy Ghost, the great advantage, the great advantage was first published by John the Baptist. Look at verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Now, the full proof of the anointing that gave Jesus the complete advantage during his earthly ministry is exposed. It was the pouring upon of the Holy Spirit. Because of this advantage, Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Now, watch these next five words. For God was with him. Well, my friend, this is the same position that Jesus spoke of his relationship to us. He said in John 14, 21, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. My Father will love you and I will love you and I will manifest myself to you. This is great. The Father and the Son would dwell and reside in us. The Holy Spirit would be with us. My God, what a position of power and strength God has designed for us to be able to operate and navigate in this earthly life. The anointing is precious because he's with us and because of the things that he accomplishes for the needy 
through us. This, my friend, is exactly how that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. <coughs> it was ordained to happen. <coughs> Excuse me, the same way in you. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We were made or manufactured to live in the advantage. We are created in the same kind of category as Jesus Christ because we are brought into a spiritual realm by his work. Being intent in internally in that category, we also are able to produce good works. Well, God has ordained that to be so. So when we see his anointing and his exhibiting and expressing the good things of God to people through the Holy Spirit, we need to realize that we are also wired and geared to function in that same advantage because we were manufactured, created in him. Did you read it? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in him. So we were manufactured in such a way that we would become internally and in our soul, another model of him. But how can that be? Well, we are born by his work. That's correct. We are made righteous by the force of what he did for us in the six works that began with the cross. That's correct. We are the inheritors of the promise of God concerning Christ. That's correct. Yes, these are all easy to see, even though we could not see how we were saved. We know it's so, because we don't do the things we used to do. We bear different fruit. But none of this, my friend, has anything to do with the anointing. All of this has to do with the gift of eternal life. So we are willing to come into the part of the message that keeps us out of hell, but we balk at the subsequent part that gives us an anointing that is in Christ Jesus. And that anointing being such that we can serve him, witness for him, and be a part of the work that Jesus began to do and to teach. Father, I pray that you'll bless this as we understand the advantage that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes now to see it. May it become apparent to us May the Holy Ghost quicken it to us. And may we begin to walk in it in the lovely name of Jesus Christ who is our high priest, our Lord, and our man in the Godhead. Amen and amen. Well, we're going to stop there and pick this back up next week with another promise that brought about the advantage of the Holy Spirit. May God bless you is my prayer. May you find him as the Lord and may he rule over your life. And may you find him as the man of God uh, in the Godhead where he will expose another promise and that promise will show you great things to come. May God bless you until we speak again.